Welcome to Radar Contact, the air traffic management podcast by Fox ATM. Welcome to one more episode of Radar Contact. My guest today is from the Netherlands. Uh, Rudumels is the managing director of the consultancy 270. Uh, Rudes, welcome to Radar Contact. Can you please start by introducing yourself rapidly? Uh, thank you, Vincent, uh, for inviting me. It's an honor to be here, of course. My name is Ruud Ummels. I'm a managing director and one of the owners of uh, 270 Aviation. One of the things that is special to 270 compared to, to other of your, of your competitors is that there is not one 270, but there are many of them. You have different companies or, or different branches in different countries. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about the company history and the reason for having different subsidiaries internationally? Yes, of course. We started the company uh, back in 2000. It wasn't me, actually. Uh, I joined uh, a couple of years later. At the time, I was employee number eight. <clears throat> And we gradually grew our business, not only in the services that we provide, uh, but also in uh, setting up international offices. Because consultancy is a people's business, uh, it is important for us to be close to where our clients are. We started off with a, a first overseas office in Australia, uh, and that uh, was quite successful. And from there, we gradually uh, grew our presence throughout uh, initially uh, Europe and uh, the Asia-Pacific region. For us, it's important uh, to think globally uh, and at the same time act locally. Uh, so within the team, we now have more than 20 nationalities with those local subsidiaries We have local directors that are responsible for the local market, that understand the culture, they speak the language, and without them, it would be impossible for us uh, to deliver our services uh, to the global uh, environment. You just said a few keywords here, uh, like speaking the language and culture. How are your different branches working together? Is, is there like a main one that supports the other ones? Or uh, do you have cross-feeding across, across them? Of course, when you start a new office, you don't have all the knowledge and expertise uh, available to you that is already available in some of the uh, offices that exist uh, a longer time. So the way we are uh, organized mainly is in regions. So uh, within Europe, we have a number of offices and basically we work as one team. We also share resources, we share projects, uh, we share the same quality management systems, etc., work from the same service. Uh, and we do the same uh, in the APEC region, uh, where uh, we have the offices in, in China, Thailand, Singapore, India, who work very closely together with uh, Australia. So in the APEC region, Australia leads the pack. In Europe, the Netherlands leads the pack. And in the Americas, we do have a presence, but we're not that far yet uh, that we have a, a leading office. Uh, but uh, Again, there we also work together. And then on a certain strategic matters, uh, we also work across regions. People have often asked us, why uh, are you not present in the Middle East? A simple reason is we haven't found uh, the right people to set up an office there for us. Uh, and in the meantime, we do work there and we work together uh, with people from Europe as well as from the APEC region. 
I guess one of the obstacles in, in the Middle East or, or challenges to put that uh, better is, is not only cultural, but also legal. Yeah. And, and I guess you have seen a lot of legal challenges and, and cultural challenges as well, building up the organization in that way. Uh, yeah, that is definitely true. But it's not only challenges, it's also opportunities uh, that that uh, brings. And yes, in every country, there's a different set of rules, uh, sometimes to do with foreign ownership, uh, sometimes to do with uh, employment regulation or the way business is conducted in general. But at the same time, I'm also confident to say that without an office in China, we wouldn't have had the success that we've had in China. Without an office in Thailand, we wouldn't have had the success there. The fact that we are local uh, is of great help to growing the business. So for us, it mainly presents us with opportunities uh, instead of uh, challenges. Challenges you can always overcome. You also mentioned language and I know myself by experience how useful it can be to speak the language of your customers. Well, French in my case, obviously. Would you say it's it's a key role or can we expect in aviation that everybody has, uh, let's say, a good command of English? We still find uh, that in many countries, uh, people prefer to speak in their native language, whether it's France or Italy uh, or China, uh, India. Uh, everywhere we see people who prefer to speak in their own language so that we can provide that uh, is something that uh, makes us quite unique. Uh, of course, English is the, the international language in aviation, uh, but uh, it is not uh, the case that uh, people, especially higher up in the management, are confident speakers in English. So it is important uh, to have people in the team that speak their language as well. I really can can only agree on that, and uh, it's it's really a key thing, and it's it's really great that you could build the organization in in this way. That is even true if you cross the border between the Netherlands and Belgium. You could say we speak the same language, but the culture is slightly different, and it's really appreciated there that we have a local uh, team that speak Flemish, so to say, and understand the Flemish way of doing business. It's already different. And that's only uh, like I live 10 kilometers from the border. Yeah, here again, that's something I can totally second. I'm just out of a meeting uh, with people from Switzerland, French speaking part and friends. And I had to translate some things from French to French, so to speak. And yeah, there are idioms, there are, there are local specialities. And it's, it's definitely important to be able to, to build these bridges. Now looking at your, at your offerings and the, the activities you have, a lot of what you are doing is, is strategy work and high-level strategy. But is it only strategy or are you also part of the execution then? Well, basically, we focus around four main areas. Uh, uh, overall, our services are focused on airport and airspace planning and optimization. But then we use four main pillars. So it's about planning, strategic planning, It's about safety, efficiency, and the environment. And uh, indeed, uh, a lot of strategy work, strategy definition is done by us. But the execution is also extremely important. Uh, you need to be able to deliver uh, a strategy in order to be successful. And 
The way we do that is also by having uh, quite a large number of operational experts in our team, uh, ranging from air traffic controllers, uh, pilots, uh, both fixed wing and rotor. And they have a lot of practical experience uh, allowing us to provide solutions to our clients that are not uh, the standard solutions that you would find in, uh, say, an airport uh, design reference manual. Civil engineers will come up with solutions like that, but we know that uh, you need to uh, work around the regulation, uh, be creative, uh, innovative in finding solutions, and that's where uh, this operational knowledge comes into play as well. There is something very interesting in what you said here again. You are not an air traffic management consultancy, you are not an airport consultancy, you are not an airline consultancy, but you are an aviation consultancy. And coming myself with a very strong ATM background, I, I don't always know a lot about, about the other things. How much cross-feeding is there between these different domains? Well, we uh, often act as, let's say, the oil uh, between uh, the airport, the aviation authority, uh, the air navigation service provider and the airspace users. We are able to speak and understand the language of air traffic control, but also of uh, airport operations and also of the regulator. And we always in projects need to find a consensus. Uh, and uh, too often we find that uh, an airport looks at the problem from their point of view uh, and finds it difficult to agree uh, with the air navigation service provider or the other way around. Uh, the same can apply between uh, the ANSP and the airline. And that's how we fit in nicely right in between those different stakeholders uh, in uh, aviation. That's the role that we uh, often play. So we are independent and that makes that, and a lot of the work we do is also data driven. And that makes that it doesn't matter whether the, whether the airport or the air navigation service provider asks us a question, you would get the same answer. And it's not the truth of the airport or the truth of the air navigation service provider. And the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. And we are trying to find that a solution that uh, is acceptable to all. Well, that's really interesting again, because airports, airlines and, and ANSPs sometimes have not, not just conflicting, but, but opposite interests. I mean, airlines want their airports to, or want their aircraft to stay at the airport a minimum time because they, they do their money flying, to put it bluntly, where sometimes airports want passengers to stay in the terminal because that's where they do business. And ATC wants safety and not always care so much about uh, punctuality and business because they are not so business driven. So I can imagine a couple of times you found yourself in the hot seats in the middle of this triangle, right? Uh, yeah, that's correct. But at the same time, uh, uh, if you look at it uh, from a distance, then you should always be able to find the optimum that, is, uh, uh, that fits all. And it can be a negotiation. Eh? And in a good negotiation, as people say, there are only losers or there are uh, winners. Somewhere you need to try and find a consensus. And that's also very much in our uh, nature here in the Netherlands, uh, always trying to find uh, this uh, consensus. 
And uh, you are right. Airports, you could consider them as a, a transport hub, a shopping center. Uh, they make their money on uh, passengers spending a lot of time uh, in their terminals. But uh, they also need to go for efficient operations because if the airport is not operating efficiently, then a passenger gets stressed and will not be spending money which you wish them to spend. So the main pillars in aviation, without a safe operation, you can't operate airspace or uh, operate an airport. And the same goes for efficiency. And then lastly, sustainability, of course, uh, is becoming more and more prominent uh, and important uh, to take into account as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, sustainability is probably the newest of the concern compared to efficiency and, and safety, but they all go hand in hand. I mean, finding an efficient flight path or an efficient operation will also be sustainable and, and probably safe, safe as well. But how do you see sustainability and, and the green aspects of aviation coming up? How much is, of your work is, is around sustainability nowadays? Uh, so sustainability is part of our DNA. When the company was founded, it was actually called 270 Aviation and Environment. We had to cut off uh, the environment part uh, because people were thinking that all we did was environmental studies, uh, but we branched out into efficiency and safety as well. But we strongly believe in a future for sustainable aviation. And that's also why we are a member of uh, ICAO's Global Coalition for Sustainable Aviation. And together we uh, aim at facilitating the development of new ideas, accelerate the implementation uh, of innovative solutions, and uh, jointly again uh, try and uh, reduce greenhouse gas emissions uh, both on the ground uh, as well as in the sky. Because you need to take a network approach in tackling climate change. And it's, it's simply something we also see that as an employer, uh, we also need to be a, a sustainable employer, creating the right uh, conditions for our employees to have a long, healthy and happy career at 270. If you are not working on your sustainability as a company, Uh, the youngest generation will simply not be attractive to you as an employer. And uh, it's becoming more and more uh, important in the, in the recruitment as well. So it, it, it just really goes uh, right through uh, the core of who we are and what we do. Yeah, I really see what you mean now when you say it's in the, the DNA of the company. And speaking of sustainability in aviation, what kind of aspects do you cover? Because there are so many things. You have flight efficiency, you have operations efficiency, you have all the emissions measurements, including noise. And obviously now we have everything related to electric flights, hydrogen flights, e-vitals, integration of, of drones and so on. Are these all things you cover or do you have your specialities? We, uh, we cover all of those, Vincent. So... Indeed, uh, it, it can be, if looking at ANSPs, it is mainly about uh, efficient flight, uh, direct routes, um, uh, reducing track miles, but also more efficient taxi operations on the ground. Uh, looking at some of the work we do for authorities, um, as well as for airports, is also about the introduction of sustainable aviation fuels, the introduction of hydrogen 
airports need to uh, be ready uh, to accommodate such aircraft uh, that will come in the very near future. Uh, in the meantime, they're already working hard on uh, the electrification of their uh, ground uh, equipment. That, ha- that means you have different needs in electricity at the airport. Then airports are also working on generating sustainable electricity uh, on site, for example, through solar panels, for which we do the uh, safety assessments. Again, a nice example, because often the airport has the idea to build a solar uh, farm on site, be it on the roof or on the ground. And then you have to, let's say, negotiate with the authorities as well as the ANSPs to make that happen because there is a lot of concern that it might negatively impact the safety of the operations. And again, we try and liaise between those different parties to find a solution that allows safe and efficient operations and at the same time allows us to build a solar farm on site. So uh, all of those topics are relevant. And uh, you also mentioned uh, things such as uh, eVTOLs, UTM, uh, another very interesting topic, a topic we also work in, in in projects very often funded by government uh, at the moment or funded by private companies. There is quite a large range of urban air mobility or regional air mobility new entrance into uh, the aviation world, manufacturers that of drones, of eVTOLs that have not worked in aviation before, who need support in uh, getting the approvals for their vertiports, um, uh, working on the uh, certification of the, uh, these new uh, aircraft. Uh, and it's in all those areas that we can provide support to our clients. I can imagine that here speaking the language of aviation, so speaking pilots, speaking air traffic controller, and so is, is really helpful. And, and speaking of different aspects and, and different industries, back in 2020, you had a venture even completely out of aviation. To put it in a nutshell, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, you were part of a project where the, the ACDM concept, that is known at airports, uh, got applied to railway transport. Uh, so can you tell us more about that and, and what the lessons were here? Yeah. yeah, that's indeed uh, correct. Um, it's a funny story, actually. Uh, we've been uh, working on ACDM for quite a few years from drafting uh, the, the guidelines to implementation for a number of airports, in, mainly in Europe and uh, in the Asia-Pacific region. And uh, that was being noticed. And uh, one of those clients went in conversation with a a rail uh, operator and a port, mentioned this uh, to them. So the client uh, approached us, and this was prior to the pandemic. They asked us, would you be interested uh, to share your experience from the aviation industry uh, with the uh, rail freight industry? Yeah, that sounded like an interesting piece of work. So uh, we took on that challenge. Uh, We are not rail experts. So we worked together with a a rail consultant from Germany, uh, Hakon. And basically, we translated uh, the ACDM concept to the RCDM, rail CDM, (laughs) uh, including uh, the operational implementation manual that you need for that. It's quite similar to an airport. 
there is a, a number of rail freight corridors in Europe from the major ports uh, like Antwerp, Rotterdam, Amsterdam, Hamburg, etc. Uh, to the distribution centers inland, as well as the distribution centers on water. So we worked on the Rhine-Alpine corridor. And similar to aviation, we brought together the different stakeholders that need to work together. Terminals, train carriers, uh, the integral operators, so the owners of the payload, uh, the shunting operators that operate near the terminals. And the infrastructure managers, like uh, in the Netherlands ProRail or Deutsche Bahn, uh, who basically act uh, as a rail navigation service provider, you could say. So they plan uh, these trains. And uh, together with them, we, similar to ACDM, we identified what the milestones uh, should be, uh, what the performance indicators are, and translate uh, those to strategic targets such as predictability. Uh, in uh, the rail freight, delays are uh, significant, and that is partially caused by uh, the inability or unwillingness, or it's a culture thing, uh, to share data uh, between these different stakeholders. So it's not that different from aviation, and it was a, a very exciting uh, venture out of aviation and potentially also something that we consider doing more of. But of course, it's all about process optimization. You can also do this in healthcare or other sectors. Uh, it doesn't matter whether you, whether you are processing uh, aircraft or passengers or patients or trains. Yeah, the, the unwillingness of sharing data reminds me a lot of the beginning of, of ACDM where airlines did not want it to share a lot because they thought, okay, but if I share that, my competitors will benefit from it. And, and in the end, after, after years, if not decades, everybody understood that it's, it's the best way to get most of the, of the resources. And it's nice to see that you can bring that to the rail uh, industry. Are there things that you learned in the rail project that you can transfer back to aviation? Are there things that the rail guys are doing better than we do in aviation? Are there things that they can bring to us? In, in our opinion, there are maybe like five or 10 years behind on what we're already doing in, uh, in aviation. So the answer to that would be no. It's not that we learned a lot from the rail industry that we can uh, then apply to uh, the aviation industry. We thought it would be uh, maybe a lot easier than uh, aviation is because uh, the tracks are there. Uh, and uh, we can't change the flight tracks of, a, of a, a train. You have similar parameters that you can play with, like uh, the speed of the train, but you can't uh, change the direction of the train. Uh, it's, it's a, we thought it would be an e a relatively easy task, but it's also extremely complex because you have so many different operators, let's say also different, like you have different airlines uh, operating in airspace or at an airport, uh, you also have different uh, trains operating those same tracks. And uh, passenger transport often has performance targets that they need to make uh, in order uh, to be able to continue to operate under the concession that they've agreed. Strangely enough, that's hardly the case in uh, freight transport. And as a result, the freight always has to wait. 
Uh, and sometimes it, it takes, they have hours of delay, uh, which would be uh, simply unacceptable uh, in aviation. But uh, for some reason, to date, uh, it's still uh, happening in, in the rail uh, business. Now, Ruth, uh, asking you personally a bit, um, maybe all for the organization, besides being uh, in 270, you are also very active with ACI and Kanzo yourself and on behalf of 270. How do you see the importance and the role of these two organizations for their members and for the community as a whole? Well, if, if you look at uh, our client base, uh, uh, we work for airports, we work for air navigation service providers, we work for authorities, and they are organized uh, in associations. Uh, so ACI is there for the airports, Canso uh, is there for the ANSPs. And we are a world business partner in the case of ACI. It's important for us to get the brand out there to share experiences that we've learned through the different projects that we do and that you can do in the committees that they have or in the working groups in the case of Canso. And you can drive some of the guidance in policy documents, the advocacy that they do on behalf of their members. And it helps you to get in contact with the people in the organizations that you want to work for. So in the case that uh, you have an established uh, business, say in Australia, and you work for a number of airports, and then you want to uh, venture out into other regions, how are you going to meet uh, those airports or uh, those ANSPs in the case of Canso? Well, if you uh, then start to work uh, in the committees of these uh, associations, You get to know the people that could become clients in, in the future. And they also learn from the experiences that you have with some of the other members in the, uh, uh, in the working groups. And you build a trust. And when you have these committee meetings, often 20, 30, 40 uh, clients come together. Uh, and only a, a relatively low number of consultancies. And uh, instead of traveling to all these 40 uh, ANSPs one after the other, you have an opportunity to meet them face-to-face -face at one of those meetings. And of course, that is helping a lot in the, in the business development, but also in the branding of the business. Because uh, we are not, uh, we also compete a lot with some of the ANSPs that uh, provide consultancy services. But we do not have that brand name. Uh, we don't manage the airspace of Schiphol or Heathrow or Frankfurt. So people don't know what we do. We are critical in, I believe, uh, in uh, the efficient, safe and sustainable operation of these airspaces. Uh, but there is not a building, uh, there's not an aircraft tail, there is not a runway that says this is 270. So we have to find other ways to get the brand out there. And it's through these associations that, uh, that we can do this. Really nice and gives, gives us a lot of food for thought. So thank you for that. And now to wrap up our usual signature question, where do you see 270 and aviation in general for the next five years, but also for the next 50 years to make the exercise a bit more interesting? If you look at 270 first, if you look back, we started in the year 2000 with two people and basically we doubled the company every three years so we had about 120 employees in 2019 and we still have 
luckily uh, we are we were able to keep the team together uh, but we're back on track to grow the company again we have a lot of uh, vacancies in different uh, offices as well so uh, most regions are doing uh, really well so in five years time it would be my expectation uh, that we are twice the size to what we are today and that cannot be achieved in Europe and uh, the APEC region alone. It's my expectation that uh, within the next five years, uh, we also have a bigger presence in Eastern Europe, but also the Americas, perhaps even uh, already Africa. And in 50 years from now, well, uh, we do expect uh, that we have offices in the, the top 20 airports uh, in the world. We now have, we are now in the top 10. Uh, we have about 10 of those 20 we have offices. And that will only grow because with the services that we provide, we can make sure that uh, airports and airspace are operated safely, efficiently, and sustainably. And uh, aviation uh, will not be gone. Uh, that's a question that people uh, also ask of themselves. 50 years from now is a, is a, is a very long way. I, I, I struggle sometimes to uh, to work on some of the uh, targets we are doing for our clients uh, that are often uh, focusing on 2050 which is only 28 years from now but that is a, a long way away and some of the uh, things if you look at the atm industry in the short term uh, at least on the european level we simply expect a further shift uh, towards new technologies and sustainability is for sure one of the key performance areas within all the developments uh, that will take place. Technology will be able to provide us with further automation, uh, think remote towers, uh, we need to work on reducing cost. And I really hope that uh, looking at ATM, that uh, we get rid of country borders because airspace simply uh, needs to be operated uh, more efficiently in order to also reduce cost. Collaboration, not only between airport and ANSP, uh, but also between ANSPs and states and between ANSPs from different countries is simply necessary to enhance the development into first a single European sky, but we will also see similar developments in the APEC region or the Middle East uh, or other regions. That's a very nice vision and I can only hope that it, it comes true and with more and more aircraft uh, flying straight lines. Ruth, thank you very much for being our guest today. I can only encourage our listeners to, to visit your website to know more. So that's 270.com, spelled T-O-7-0.com. So thank you for being our guest today and talk to you soon. Thank you. See you in Madrid. See you in Madrid indeed. This was Radar Contact. Visit foxatm.com or your favorite podcast platform for more.